0: For most of us, travel has been a part of our everyday life. But thanks to the COVID-19 pandemic, it has become almost non-existent. The day will come when we can get back to our trains, planes and automobiles. And yes, boats too. But for now, there are questions. And that's why we're back with Ron St. John. He was the Director General of the Centre for Emergency Preparedness and Response at the Public Health Agency of Canada. He's also helped develop the Global Public Health Intelligence Network, which helps health professionals rapidly detect, identify, assess, prevent, and mitigate threats to human health. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Tetro, and this is the Super Awesome Science Show SAS Class on travel. Over the last week, I've heard from quite a few of you, and it seems you were all on the same page. We only had a few commonly repeated questions for Ron St. John, but they are all important to our understanding of travel in the future, even after the pandemic comes to a close. Now, if you haven't listened to last week's episode, I would suggest you go back now and do so before we get into the questions here. It was a very unique look at travel and infectious disease that I'm sure you won't soon forget. It'll also make you realize how tenuous travel can be if we're not paying attention to the potential. For infectious disease spread. Class is now in session. Here's your first question. We've heard quite a bit about cruise ships being floating petri dishes.
1: Are they better or worse than airplanes? Well, a petri dish is a place where you grow germs. <laughs> and it's not a bad description for a cruise ship because when you take a large number of people, and now cruise ships are carrying 3,000, 5,000 people, and they're really in a very confined space. Um, And if if you just introduce uh, a virus, especially something like the Norwalk virus or even a a bacteria that contaminates the food supply, you're going to infect a large number of people. And it's going to happen fairly quickly. Um, And you're going to have these outbreaks of uh, gastroenteritis or uh, respiratory illness, pneumonias and whatnot on cruise ships. And uh, although cruise ships make every effort to uh, sanitize their vessels and clean their vessels and maintain good food hygiene and so forth, there are some limits. Um, And part of that has to do with the fact that the crew from the cruise ship come from many, many different countries. And they may also be bringing along some of the germs that that, that they are accustomed to, but uh, we may not be accustomed to. And they may be able to introduce, unfortunately, inadvertently, those germs into the cruise ship environment.
0: And we now know that PPE, personal protective equipment, can help. Do you think that companies should be providing PPE in situations like cruise ships and even airplanes, much like they do, say, life jackets?
1: Well, the PPE is is designed, obviously, to protect, protect the employees or the staff that are working in that environment, just like uh, personal protective equipment is so important for uh, our hospitals our, and our healthcare workers, because they are at very, very high risk when they come in contact with the public that where there is an outbreak of disease. So, but, but the, the question comes up of what degree of PPE. Um, if you want, if you see a healthcare worker in PPE, well, they have, a, they have the gowns and the masks and the face shield and the goggles. It's hard to imagine that right. in a cruise ship with staff walking around uh, dressed like that. And, and do they really need to be dressed like that? I think there are other measures that businesses and cruise ships can take. Um, to try to minimize uh, the contact between people if there's an outbreak situation.
0: What about then preventing people from getting on the aircraft or the cruise ship uh, at the very beginning? We've heard about this in the past where uh, flight attendants will prevent people from getting on the plane for a variety of reasons— Can we do that? If you're exhibiting symptoms, can we just simply prevent you from getting on?
1: According to the International Health Regulations, which is an international quasi-treaty administered by the World Health Organization and signed by 192 nations, the conveyance can deny boarding to a passenger that is overtly overtly ill. Mm -hmm. Now, the International Health Regulations sometimes... May conflict with national regulations or national law, um, yeah. and often national law will take precedent uh, and and uh, over the international health regulations. But, but in principle, conveyances, ships, uh, planes, buses, whatever, can deny passage to a, an overtly ill person.
0: Do you expect? people are going to be willing to pay more to have safety measures to be able to help them prevent infection spread on an airplane or any other uh, vehicle, for that matter?
1: I think they're not going to have a choice. I think the cost of international travel is going to increase. How much more, I, I don't know. But it may be the end of the budget airline. That remains to be seen. Uh, because airline travel will become more.
0: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm
1: here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
0: There was one more set of questions that came up, not only after our talk with Ron St. John, but also over the last year. They all have to do with ultraviolet light, UV for short. People have been looking for ways to stay safe beyond disinfectants and those hand sanitizers, and UV seems to have taken hold in those pandemic aspirations. But do UV gadgets actually work? Well, The answer is, it depends. To give us more information on the use of UV to kill pathogens, like SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus, I have reached out to Rick Dayton. He's been developing UV products for healthcare and has been helping hospitals find ways to improve their disinfection practices using UV light. His most recent creation is called the Moonbeam 3, which is as unique as it gets. Why don't you Google it while we're listening
2: so you can see what I mean.
0: What specifically is ultraviolet light?
2: Ultraviolet light is a component of electromagnetic spectrum. So if you think about... um waves coming in on an ocean. These big, long rolling waves are really your um, infrared, your radio waves and some visible light. And as those waves, if you think about the smaller ripples on a pond, those are getting to be shorter wavelength. And that is getting more down into those smaller frequencies where you start to think about ultraviolet. It's a shorter wavelength. So ultraviolet is broken into a couple of different sections, uh, UVA, B and C. And the main disinfecting capability comes out of the UVC. What's the
0: difference between the ultraviolet light that tans and the one that kills?
2: The shorter the wavelength of light, the less penetration is capable. The wavelength of energy that is useful for tanning, for example, is in the UVB spectrum. So it's a little bit longer wavelength than UVC. It's not as long as UVA. So ultraviolet A can go into your skin. Easily penetrates through glass, you know, no question. UVB starts to be a little bit on the edge. Only very specific, you know, glass can it really readily penetrate, and even then, it's you know, it's attenuated, it's reduced fairly significantly. UVC is the shortest of all these wavelengths. It cannot go through glass. That small amount of energy is able to propagate into the cell of an organism. Just very, you know, s- small amount, but it is able to penetrate the DNA strand and disrupt the DS, DNA strand at the, only at the point responsible for cell replication. So the organism truly is completely alive after it's been exposed to ultraviolet light, but it will very quickly decline because it's not able to replicate.
0: Is that why people say that sunlight is the best disinfectant?
2: Nope, definitely not you know so there are other there are other photoreactions that can take place that can have a germicidal effect you know certainly the ability to just dry out an organism but not all wavelengths are germicidal But looking at the wavelengths that are responsible for the primary germicidal effective, uh, the the effectiveness of germicidal radiation is really um, centered around roughly, you know, 260, 270 nanometers. That's not what you get in UVA. You know, UVA is going to be a longer wavelength, 300 and something, 400 nanometers. It's really down around that 260, 270 that's really the sweet spot for germicidal irradiation.
0: How do we harness ultraviolet light so that we can use it for whatever purposes we deem acceptable, whether it be a suntan bed or something to clean a hospital.
2: So there are a few different ways you can generate ultraviolet light. You know, UVC LEDs are on the market. So you can have a UVC LED that that creates an exactly you know two hundred and sixty nanometer light, um, or you can have a mercury vapor bulb uh, that those operate at two hundred and fifty four nanometers, which for the peak, which is very close to the uh, the germicidal peak 260, 270 range. Uh, but then you also you have you know excimer lamps, you know a variety of sources. But actually, how you go about generating that energy is is one part but the power of that energy is important so the way ultraviolet energy is applied it's it's an electromagnetic energy and i like to think about it in in two different concepts right so if you're thinking about reading in a room with a light bulb you put the light bulb in the corner and if that's the only light source and it's night you want to turn your book Uh, so that the pages are facing the light. So the photons of energy from that light are, are falling on your book. If you turn that book around, so the back, you know, the cover of the book is facing the light and you're facing, you know, the page, you can't read that book very well because ultraviolet light, it bounces a little bit, but even with a super polished surface, you're not getting a lot of energy reflected. So ideally you need to have that energy going in a straight line to the object that you want to illuminate or irradiate for germicidal efficacy. So that's one piece of it. The second part is if I'm going to read, you know, if, if your office is in Edmonton and you have a bulb there, and I'm sitting here in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I bring up my you know book to read here, I'm way too far away, right? So distance is the second component that impacts the energy uh, delivered. So the key ingredient is to make sure that you have the right energy level, the intensity of your source but then also you want a a true direct line of sight to your object. Very important. And the other piece in that, the angle that that energy impacts your surface also contributes to the amount of energy that is really delivered to that surface. No, so if you think about skipping stone on a lake, you throw a stone very close to the surface of the lake, and that stone is going to ricochet right off. The same general principle applies to electromagnetic energy. So it's important to have the right proximity of your source, the energy level of your source, and then applying that energy at the correct um, angle. And they don't bend. No, I mean, theoretically, if you look at Mr. Einstein, right, my, my hero, uh, certainly you can bend electromagnetic energy right through gravitational lensing. That's not what we're talking about here. For all intents and purposes, light is a straight phenomenon. So it's not going to bend around a surface. It's not going to magically somehow appear on the other side. And there is reflection, right? Electromagnetic energy can reflect. But the key thing here, if we're standing one meter apart, if you send the energy directly to me, that energy is is powerful and straight but now if we're that same 1 meter apart but you apply that energy toward a wall at 45 degrees and then you're going to the energy is going to bounce to me off of that wall at 45 degrees and come away you know you're no longer 1 meter away from me you're actually the distance between you and the wall and the distance from the wall to me so even if that wall was perfectly reflective you've increased the distance and electromagnetic, electromagnetic energy reduces by the square of the distance. So it's a significant impact. Every little bit of dis- distance makes a big difference. So that's why, no, it doesn't bend. You need to apply the energy directly. And ideally, you know, with, with good proximity, correct angle of incidence.
0: And that brings me to the concept of products. We are constantly hearing about ultraviolet light products that are designed to kill. How effective are these products? And more importantly, how could we trust them, whether it be, say, at the home or, as we've been talking about, travel, so that we are staying safe?
2: Right. Well, if you heard that heavy sigh, um, the challenge with that is there are a variety of stipulations that do and do not make various ultraviolet devices effective. So the largest challenge that we have with um, electromagnetic energy, anything that's that you can carry or that is like a wand, you know, a hand-based device, you need to be able to apply a high enough level of energy that inactivates the organism. So current studies for coronavirus are showing, um, and without getting too technical, somewhere in the 10 millijoule range of energy, for example. So that amount of energy may be available from a battery-powered handheld tool But the challenge is that you have to move it very, very slowly. You have to be very close to a surface. And importantly, you need to pre-clean that surface. Because like we were talking about UVA, UVB, UVC, the ability to penetrate of UVC is very small. So if you have your cell phone, for example, and you bring it up to your face, uh, you've got cosmetics, you have sunscreen, you've got oils from your skin, those small, small amount of soils or a biofilm, for example, build up on a surface and the ultraviolet energy is not able to penetrate that. So what happens is your um, you know pathogen is very healthy and happy underneath a protective layer of soil, for example. So what many people fail to realize is that ultraviolet does not stand on its own as a disinfecting tool. It's more of an insurance policy. So if you gave me a, a surface to clean, I clean that surface with my disinfecting solution but I'm not going to cover all of it. And I might not fully remove everything, but then I use the ultraviolet as an overarching larger area umbrella to try to cover the areas that I missed. So it's likely that I have at least disturbed the soils or otherwise given my ultraviolet an opportunity to penetrate and to give us a clean disinfected top surface. Whereas, you know, if, if I didn't do that pre-cleaning first, it might there might be a protective barrier there. So if you've got a lower intensity, you know, ultraviolet device, you know, certainly you need to make sure that you clean your areas first. And then in a very methodical method, you'd want to take that wand or that that energy source and being very careful, you know, meticulously moving it back and forth. And I'm talking about moving your hand such that, you know, to cover the desk in your office, you know, it it might take you a minute and a half to cover that surface, because the amount of energy is very low. And so you need to make sure that's very consistently applied.
0: And so if we have these boxes where you just throw in your keys or your cell phone, they're not going to be all that effective, are they?
2: exactly right the the need for pre-cleaning is generally like across the board is required with an ultraviolet technology you know even putting your phone for example in and out of your pocket you know you can get a two to three log reduction uh, just from a from an abrasion perspective and and i would still rather use uv re- if even if i don't have cleanly you know a a cleaning procedure ahead of time. I would still use ultraviolet uh, because it it is at least a step in the right direction. But you w- really want to remove those gross soils and solids. So a UV box that you can put something into. If you're not pre-cleaning, you know, especially if you go into a hospital environment or something, like absolutely not. You know, if you're going to use it for a home purpose or a travel pur- purpose, if you've got a small device that you can put your your object in, you're likely better off using a disinfecting towelette you know, to remove the, the general soils. Um, ultraviolet is an additional step that you could use if, uh, you know, if I wanna take it to my uh, grandmother, you know, or, or somebody that's um, a more immunocompromised, I'm gonna take every opportunity possible to try to improve that situation. Um, wipes are only so effective. Um, ultraviolet is only so effective. Combine the two of them for what we call the one-two punch, and you've got a tremendous outcome. You know, very robust.
0: The reason that I wanted to speak with you is because you are the man behind something called a moonbeam. And in the infection prevention control world, this is like one of the coolest things. Literally, it looks like a tree that came out of some Star Trek show. How does that work in terms of being able to keep a hospital clean. Is it just simply a matter of you move it around, you angle it, you do your pre-cleaning wipe and then you just leave it there? Is that really what it comes down to? And if so, then uh, unless it's an absolutely perfect cube, is gonna require a lot more manual activity than just leaving something in the middle of a room and, and you know letting it shine.
2: Right, you cannot just place something in the middle of the room and let it shine. We talked about the distance to your object, right? That distance, inverse square law, impacts you radically. The angle of your source to that surface impacts you radically. You know, So the base premise of this, how can I help hospitals reduce that this problem? And if you create a device that's a single site, it's a challenge. So the ability to um, change the angle you know, if you go into the CDC website, you know, you can look to see some of the surfaces that they specify. And of the 17 surfaces, I think 13 of them are horizontal. If you take a vertically oriented bulb, so your bulb is straight up and down, and you want to dose a horizontal surface, your angle of impact, remember that stone skipping across the water, same scenario here. So your energy from a vertical bulb coming down off of that you know, light source, hitting that, that horizontal surface, bounces off. With the Moonbeam 3, the base premise here was that arm actually allows you to click into a position that allows you to get equal irradiation on horizontal or vertical surfaces. So that is the key innovation. And, and really, the, the key with that also is that the arms are spread. You've got a left, right, and center. And each one of those arms gives you a certain range. So the key with that is we're maximizing proximity, proximity. We're maximizing the angle of incidence. And because of that ability, that changes the speed with which the the device operates. So you expose in one area the speed with with which it works and the efficacy that you get. There's some variation there. With Moonbeam 3 three minutes on the left-hand side of the bed, then we say you move it to the other side and you run another three minutes, take it in the bathroom, three minutes in a, in a, in a hospital environment. So in about 10 minutes, you're in and out and you've applied a very heavy field of ultraviolet to the, the, the CDC high contact surfaces. So you can't just sit it in the middle of the room because if I am you know three meters away from a, a surface, that's a really low amount of energy in the neighborhood of 1% of my starting power. However, if I'm one meter away, then I've got everything that I'm really looking to apply to that surface greater than 80 millijoules.
0: And I think it brings up something that everybody uh, should understand. And that is, if you want to be able to be effective at disinfection, you got to put in the work. You can't just leave it.
2: Exactly right. Exactly right. Now, we want to remove soils. We want to remove solids. We, We want to work on biofilms. You do all those things and then you apply ultraviolet, you've got a really robust technique. If you don't clean first and only use ultraviolet, eh, you're not gonna get as good of a result. If you only clean and your manual cleaning, again, statistically, we're about 85% efficient as humans. You need those levels of security, especially in immunocompromised environments and with coronavirus you know other different things we've encountered it's, it's a challenge we want to make sure we apply the best combination of technologies possible that'll one two punch i think is the really the right solution
0: and there you have it i want to thank everyone who asked a question and i do hope you have gained some further insight into how travel will proceed in the future and how uv light might be able to help if you didn't hear your question, make sure to let me know by tweeting me at JATetro or sending me an email at thegermguy at gmail.com. And don't forget, you can always leave me a voice message at speakpipe.com slash sass. That's S-A-S-S. Next week, we're going to be talking about the difference between men and women when it comes to COVID. You are not going to want to miss this one. And that's why it's best to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It really does help spread the word and get more people to find the podcast and the unique take on science that we're offering. We're part of the CuriousCast family and are available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to Ron St. John. The award-winning Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro, Deal of Velasquez is our story producer, and sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. Have a great week, stay safe, and as always, make sure to show them some sass.